I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning. Good morning, Brandon. How are you? You got Jamie and Amy. Hey, Jamie and Amy. Hey, how you doing? Good. Good. Great to talk to you. For the most part, this is just going to be like a loosey-goosey conversation. And you're just going to, you know, reveal your deepest, darkest secrets <laughs> to us. Right. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Get it. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Derringer. And I'm Amy Devers. And this is Clever. Clever is a podcast in which we have conversations with the super smart people who are shaping the world around us through design. And today we're talking to Brendan Ravenhill, an LA-based lighting and product designer. Brendan's a really cool guy and he's got lots of great stuff to share with us in this episode, but he's also pretty deep. And he talks about the grief of losing his father and how it really connected him to the process of making. Well, and that got us thinking about grief and catharsis and making slash creating as a form of healing. I have always talked to people about creativity and where it comes from. And oftentimes there's a life change or they're reevaluating something or they, they, in my case, I had a baby and that was a huge life change for me. All of a sudden I had just unlocked something in my brain where all of this creativity was hiding and it just all came out, pouring out and I just couldn't stop making things. I couldn't stop painting and drawing. And was that a hormonal change or was that this like reevaluation that happens when you're so aware of your priorities? I think having a, a child or, or any kind of major life event sometimes causes you to reevaluate your place in the world and what you're doing with your life. And it, it causes you to reflect on your own mortality. And mm-hmm. so I think that's basically what I was doing. And I just had this need to, to make things. You know, an interesting chapter in my story was that I was learning how to be a designer and how to make things and, and really, you know, developing this vocabulary of my own expression through material and function. And then I went through this gut-wrenching breakup. And then I really explored the process of making as a form of, of healing, as a form of processing all of those emotions. And it was so therapeutic to have my hands moving the entire time that I was processing that. It was really like all of the toxicity, like the cancer was coming out and Instead of it being useless, it, it manifested in a, in a work of sculpture that I'm incredibly proud of. That's very therapeutic. Before we go into our conversation with Brendan Ravenhill, let's get you up to speed on him a little bit first. He's a lighting, furniture, and product designer who runs his studio out of Los Angeles. And he also grew up in West Africa and parts of coastal Maine in D.C. for a while. And he studied sculpture at Overlin and industrial design at RISD. And he's done a lot of interesting stuff like boat building and barn building and workshops with kids. So let's talk to Brendan. I think I do what I do because I love the act of creating something that never existed before. From an invention kind of standpoint or from like a bringing like a birthing kind of standpoint? I think it's more the latter. I think it's a certain aspect of birthing about having something that maybe you're the first to behold and maybe it's not necessarily inherently novel, but it's yours. And there's something that's just really quite just satisfying about being the person who had a vision and then 
somehow brought it to to realization. I think it's the same love that I had playing Legos as a kid. It's not so dissimilar from that, but there's that same kind of just like ownership of of making that mm-hmm. is my drug of choice. Okay, so let's go right back to the beginning then. I know you spent a big portion of your childhood in West Africa. So that's different from my childhood and I think different from Jamie's. So mm-hmm. we want to know all about that. Yeah, uh, my parents were anthropologists. And so, uh, and my mother was actually, her parents were missionaries. And so my mother also grew up in West Africa, uh, in Ivory Coast, uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and so she was born there and lived there her entire childhood, and then uh, went to study linguistics and anthropology in school and ended up doing her fieldwork, her dissertation, in the same tribal language group that she had grown up around. And so she had gotten actually the advice of Noam Chomsky to, you know, go back and follow, go back and do her dissertation in this culture that she was so inherently familiar with because she grew up kind of speaking the, the language is called Baole. And so there was this amazing opportunity to go back and study with that same language group. And so she went there um, to do her dissertation and then ended up staying for years afterwards. And so we were all born and raised in uh, Abidjan, which is uh, the commercial capital of Ivory Coast. So from zero to eight, I lived there and spoke fluent French and, um, you know, had a very different, uh, wow. different existence. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Do you still speak French? I do. I speak really good West African French is what I've realized. Uh, I've gone to France a couple of times and I don't speak it that well, but we just went back to Ivory Coast uh, last Christmas and I could understand everyone very easily and my French came off very legibly to everybody else. So I speak a very specific type of French. Can you say, um, my goodness, Amy, you're so beautiful today in in French? (laughs) Um, Let's see. That right translation. Um, Amy, tu es très belle aujourd'hui. Oh, that sounds so nice. Is that how you got your wife? (laughs) No, not quite. Not quite. Uh, She doesn't speak French. I don't think it'd be quite as impressive for her. But uh, no, we, we met actually building a barn in Maine. That's how I got my wife. (laughs) Okay, we've got stories to cover. Yeah, we'll get into that soon. You mentioned earlier about playing with Legos. So what was your first introduction to the idea of design or or making things? I grew up around a dad who spent all his weekends making things. And so I just kind of took it for granted that everyone had that same similar experience. My dad just grew up, you know, always making bookshelves or toys for us or building out, you know, his office space. And so I just kind of grew up always being, you know, the weight on the end of a board as he cut it or the person getting him nails that fell on the ground. Um, The little boy just at his father's workbench. And so I had this like amazing tactile, almost apprentice-like upbringing, which I I didn't realize till I went to college was something that was very unique um, and that I had this like innate understanding of how things got put together as a result of growing up around him. And so I think he surrounded us with toys like Legos and Tinker Toys that, you know, had that same kind of construction uh, assembly uh, methodology. And so growing up, we were just, you know, always pawing through those deep bins of Legos looking for that one piece. I remember, I remember many uh, long hour in the weekends entertaining ourselves that way. And so um, I think I got exposed to the world of making that way as it specifically relates to design. Um, you know, I became more familiar with it as a field uh, more later on in my uh, in my education. Like after I kind of graduated from college, I became more exposed to the field of industrial design I mean, by then I knew who the Eames were and who George Nelson was, you know, you learned that just in art school and in just general culture. But it wasn't until after I graduated with a sculpture degree from Overland College that I started hearing that, you know, industrial design was this other discipline and field where you could make, you know, a profession or a career for yourself. So you just mentioned college and industrial design and art school, you also mentioned, which was sculpture at Oberlin, right? Oberlin's a liberal arts college. So there's, you know, I went there thinking I want to be a politics major um, and kind of declared, you know, my freshman year that I was going to do politics or history. And uh, I actually lost my father that freshman year of college. And it kind of just shifted my whole world a little bit. And oh, uh, yeah. 
growing up and just realized that just the passion that I'd had for history and reading and politics was strong, but it, it just, it wasn't what I was drawn to at that time. I was in a pretty deep amount of grief and, and found great healing and, and, and solace in the making process and started really just pouring myself into the art classes that I had managed to enroll into. Mm. And after, you know, a semester just changed my major and my focus to being like, you know, I just want to make things. I just want to create things. So it was this really kind of healing place where I could feel close to him and feel like I was, you know, honoring his legacy, but also just that same sensation of making things and birthing things was a, was a big part of my grieving process. I think a lot of the art that I made during my college years was very much dealing with his loss, but also discovering, you know, in this more um, academic, uh, academic institution, just the, the idea of critical discourse and ideas and, and the pursuing the idea and, and the process behind art and art making. And so was uh, industrial design at RISD, was it back to back or was there space between studying sculpture at Oberlin and industrial design at RISD? No, I had about uh, six years between the two. Um, I, I love the Oberlin art program. It was an amazing art program, but it was very heavy on theory. And so that was actually really great for me because I had a making background. So I had a way of articulating my ideas into reality mm-hmm. a lot more easily than some of my peers who just, they weren't taught how to weld or build things out of wood. I graduated there thinking I had a really good sense of like academic theory um, or so I thought with that you know, 22 year old's perspective. But I felt that I was really lacking in a uh, set of skills, a really deep kind of, you know, methodology of, process. And so I started pursuing kind of as soon as I graduated, a kind of journeyman's education where I would take on jobs for a period of a couple of years to learn a trade. And so uh, mm. soon after graduating, I moved to Maine where I was a lobsterman for four years. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and during that time, I learned how to be a lobsterman, but uh, primarily learned how to do carpentry and woodworking. Uh, took a year off during those four years to uh, build a barn and learned a lot about timber framing and general, you know, construction. Um, that was, was that, was that the barn? That is the barn. Yeah. So I moved <laughs> to Maine, was lobstering for a year, then took a year to do just general carpentry as I learned how to, you know, build things. And then we decided to do a, like a Amish style barn raising in the summer of 2002. Uh, and it was during that process that we invited, you know, all our friends um, to come up and, you know, like, we'll, we'll put you up, we'll feed you if you want to help us build this barn. And so we just, you know, over the course of a month in August, um, a lot of friends came up and one of them happened to eventually uh, be my wife. But she came up through a friend of a friend and uh, we put her to work and she liked it. And she came back the next summer and we put her to work. And then she came back a third summer and we put her to work. And finally, that third summer, we got together because by then we'd uh, kind of been eyeing each other from across the construction site for a while. But uh, yeah, it took, it took a couple of years to, to win her over, but it was all through the process of working for sure. That is one of the most romantic stories I've ever heard. But I also need to know, why were you raising these barns? Was this a charitable endeavor? Was this because you were planning to run a farm? No, and a, a barn is mostly only because it's a timber frame structure that, you know, most barns are built like. But no, it was a barn that was always supposed to be a, like a wood shop. Um, parents had bought this property in Maine um, in like 83 and had built a house in 85. And it's uh, six acres on this little island off the coast of Maine. And it's the one thing that's been a very constant in my life. So when we lived in uh, Ivory Coast, we went there every summer for two or three months. And then we moved to DC and we still went back every summer for a month or two. Um, and so when I moved from graduated from college, I just like finally wanted to go there and not leave. I had always been a summer kid on this Island uh, that has a small year round community. And I just finally wanted to stay year round. Um, so that's how I got into lobster fishing. Cause that's like kind of a local year round industry there. And so the idea had always been that one day we'll build on our property, like a little workshop, a place my dad idealized for him to kind of retire to and make things and tinker around. And so in some ways, uh, building the barn was very much like a, his legacy that he handed down to us was, you know, 
make this thing that we'd always, you know, he'd always, this is where the wood shop's going to go one day, or he called it, you know, the, the, the little storage shed or the garage. And so we just started dreaming as to what it could be and then discovered timber framing and the beauty and the artistry of that process. And then set up, set about, set about to build um, a 20 by 42 foot timber frame barn. That would be a place for us to put our boats up in the winter, but in the summertime have like a wood shop that we could build and make things out of and has a little loft up above. So the barn was built uh, as an idea of like more like an artist studio. I really liked the lobster fishing as a, as a profession, but it, it leaves a lot of days off. Like you only go fishing maybe a hundred, 150 days out of the year, mm-hmm. which means you have 200 days plus of just, you know, being on being left to yourself. And so the, a place for me to work on my sculpture and, you know, carpentry projects was a very exciting thing. So the barn became a, just a manifestation of like my dad's I workshop. And so we just ended up building it, um, probably overbuilding it. It's much bigger than my mom had, thought we were building it. We told her we were just building a small shed and then it ended up being this kind of massive barn, but it was an amazing project. And I learned a lot about construction and carpentry and how to run a large team of people because, you know, at times we had 20 people on site and everyone was looking for me to, you know, guidance. And so I had to really be able to think on my feet and, you know, coordinate large groups of people. And I think those, that process has definitely led me well, um, in my current job running a studio, it's just how to, how to be a good boss and how to be a good. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild looking Alice in Wonderland themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called mouse parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole and things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. You know, project manager. So it sounds like you've always been kind of a self-starter, just taking control of your life and saying, I'm going to go learn how to do this, or I'm going to, you know, try this. So it sounds like you've always been pretty entrepreneurial, but I guess my, my, my question would be what happens between building barns and and lobster fishing to uh, uh, making lights? (laughs) Like what's the bridge between these things? How did that Um, start? Yeah. I feel like the self-starting and entrepreneurial thing, I was, it took me a while to get to that point. I feel like I, I was a little bit of a late bloomer and I think I was, you know, a fine student in high school, but I don't think I was an exceedingly good student in high school. And I think college was in some ways a little bit of a coasting. And I think it took a a pretty deep depression that I reached my junior year to realize that like I was the change that I saw, you know, if I just just, like changed my perspective, I could do a lot more. And I think it was soon after kind of making this realization from a very low point uh, during college that I was like, Oh, it's just work, you know, like you can kind of do anything you want if you just like put in the work. And I think that kind of changed a lot of my perspectives as to what was possible. Um, and so when I moved to Maine, it was like very much at that point, you know, I wanted to learn, I wanted to make, I wanted to build. Um, and so lobster fishing afforded me the luxury of, 
you know, an income um, that I didn't have to worry about, which funded my other pursuits of making a barn, which is a rather expensive endeavor. But I was at that time making pretty good money lobster fishing. So it was easy to put that money back into that. Um, and then the shift from sculpture or boat building to design kind of came about uh, realizing a little bit that I love the creating process, but the I didn't necessarily love making the same thing over and over again. And so industrial design just became this incredibly attractive field and that you could really obsess about the details and the specificity of all these little moments when you design something and then you could have that thing that you design be scalable and repeatable. So like, unlike a sculpture where you would invest that same kind of time and effort and make a sculpture, you had to kind of do it all over again for the next sculpture. And I just really love the idea of, maybe spending too much time on something, but because it's scalable being have that scalability mean that your investment time could be, you know, amortized over many, many units. So industrial design was just more of like a pivot for me. It was like, for me, I, I see it as sculpture, but you know, a mass addition, you know? And so the idea of the aims is of doing, you know, the most, uh, the greatest thing for the least, least amount of money for the most amount of people was this really attractive, uh, idea of mm-hmm. like, shifting from sculpture to industrial design of like you can make a sculpture that everyone can buy you know because you're making thousands of them or hundreds of them and so i got really attracted to doing industrial design with this thing of like shifting over from just me and my workshop doing one-off pieces to designing something that many people could enjoy and that would be able to be translated to different cultures or different societies so that interest in industrial design led you to study at RISD. Um, after six years of lobster fishing and barn building, is that? Yeah. Uh, in between that, I, uh, after meeting my wife, I eventually left Maine and then I moved down to New York, um, where she was living in Brooklyn. And while I was there, um, got a job at a boat building program in the South Bronx that worked with, uh, high school kids in the South Bronx to build traditional wooden boats. And, I had always grown up in Maine around wooden boats. I read Wooden Boat Magazine when I was a kid because my dad subscribed to it. So I had this like innate knowledge of wooden boats just from like leafing through these glossy magazines. And so when this opportunity to work in the South Bronx at a boat building program came up, I applied. And Adam Green, who was the one who guy who started the program called Rocking the Boat, uh, told me he was looking for, you know, a seasoned boat builder. And I pointed out that he was in the South Bronx and that there's not many seasoned boat builders there, <laughs> but that like I could totally do it. And I volunteered to, you know, work for free for a week and just see if it fit and see if, if, if he thought I was up for the task. And after a week of working there, uh, he offered me the job. And so I did that for about a year and a half um, and learned a lot. I mean, that was another one of these, you know, journeyman type jobs or apprenticeship type jobs where, I was basically learning on the fly, which is an amazing way of like keeping the learning quick and fast and uh, keeping you really engaged. And so it was very much just like te- learning by teaching methodology, which is just like staying one step ahead of the students, right? <laughs> yeah, staying one step ahead of students, leaning on the apprentices that were there. But really, I just I, I learned on the on the job, which is an amazing way of getting education um, because you don't go into massive amounts of debt and you're just held to this incredibly high standard of having all these, you know, kids looking at you for leadership when you have to pretend you know what you're doing. So it was a lot of, um, it was a great education. And after about a year of doing that, decided that like, I loved it, but I, I miss Maine terribly. And I just missed the ability to go to Maine for a couple months every summer. And after a year at Rock in the Boat, started with my brother and sister, our own boat building program in Maine. So, you know, kind of nice uh, full circle, we ended up founding something called Islesford Boatworks, which is a nonprofit boat building program that builds uh, boats with kids every summer off the same island off the coast of Maine. And it's actually held in the barn that we had built a couple of years back. And we're going on 11 years strong. Um, this wow. is the 11th summer of building boats with kids. Congratulations. And That's awesome. Yeah. It's like kind of a secondary, you know, passion. Um, but it's, uh, it's an amazing teaching less moment, uh, building a boat with kids There's something really wonderful. And I think in a lot of ways I want to give 
kids that same knowledge that I grew up with. It's this ability to see how things are made and to get that innate knowledge that allows you to think that I can make a boat, so therefore I can make anything. And um, in some ways, I think that's the biggest strength of our of our program is that not that many kids will graduate with an idea that they're going to become full-time boat builders, but hopefully every kid graduates with an idea that like a hammer and nail on some pieces of wood is like, you know, something that they're comfortable with and they can make things out of and that kind of familiarity with tools. I mean, in an age when there's like no more shop or home ec, like those skills are kind of getting lost. We need more of those programs to really be able to expose kids to just the, the things that I grew up so lucky to be exposed to. Yeah, I mean, you're you're giving them a skill set they're not going to be able to get in school, um, especially at a young age. I mean, that kind of skill set is invaluable. Yeah, and I mean, we start kids as young as seven in this program, and you know, we teach them. You know, every kid has a certain every kid's slightly different, but we've learned that seven year old uh, girls, especially, are like really good with block planes of all things. They don't have quite the muscles to power through it so they have to really use finesse to get it to work and that is like a magic little age where like eight-year-old boys will just kind of just like they'll just obliterate you know what they're working on and the block plane will fall apart and it won't work but usually like uh the younger the girl um the 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 more finesse she has with that with that instrument and it's kind of wonderful to see just like how certain ages and certain uh certain kids just really take to this thing so naturally and it's uh it's just super fun so all of these cumulative experiences probably influence what kind of a boss you are in terms of running your studio. Cause sometimes it is like managing a bunch of kids. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely aspects of that. Um, you know, I've been blessed to have some amazing bosses and some not so amazing bosses. In some ways, I think I've learned more from my not so amazing bosses um, than, than my great ones. But uh, yeah, I think endless patience is something that is a big part of working with kids, but also just like being, you know, being a good boss is just like always being able to take the time to prioritize someone else's, you know, time over your own um, and being able to really set people up for success. I think that's, that's, that's the biggest lesson I've learned is like how to really set people up so that they have all the information they need, all the tools they need to really be able to make something that's, you know, a contribution um, as opposed to, spinning their wheels or knowing that every effort that they put in is just wasted. Yeah. Or just waiting, doing one task and then coming back to you to say, what do you want me to do next? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. Giving them that bigger picture and really yeah. being able to see the whole thing out. And then when they, when inevitably they do come to you and they've done it, you know, they've done it to the fullest extent and that, you know, you're just reviewing it at that point. It's not like they're trying to think through your brain. You really try to like disseminate all that information so that they can, you know, take it and run with it as far as, as, as they can. Yeah. I mean, part of being a good boss, I think, is instilling confidence in the people that work for you so that they feel like they can make decisions um, and are proud of, of what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And just really valuing their opinion. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is like, mm -hmm. I'm always asking, like, what do you think? You know, and like I have an answer, but I'm more interested in other people's perspective before I give my own. I mean, it's like that's that's the beauty of having other people working with you is that you get these new perspectives and these new new ideas. And I don't want to be the person who makes every decision. I'd much rather be the person who like listens to other people's decisions and then like helps mold them or shift them than, you know, wanting everything to come through me. I mean, the thing I realized about running a studio is that like my inherent desire at the studio is to be a designer and to have other people tell me what to do and like design this, design that, you know, like I don't, I don't really want to be like the boss who's telling everyone what to do. I just want a bunch of people who can work autonomously and collectively together. You know, we make something great, but I've, as I've built the studio, I've tried to keep the job of like designer as my primary role and mm -hmm. get rid of the other tasks that, you know, I could easily do, but I'm not, I don't have a natural affinity for. Well, talking specifically about being a designer, you've had troubles with light bulbs in your designs. And so you just went ahead and made your own light bulb. Could you tell us a little bit about that Edison moment where were you just sitting there and, and like literally light bulb idea went off above your head and you were like let's make our own we kind of got into making our own light bulbs just like because so many of our fixtures use exposed bulbs sourcing uh really good led bulbs just became this like recurring need um we just had customers who were like oh i love this fixture but like i need to have led bulbs either for code purposes or 
uh, environmental purposes. And so we, because we care about the details, just spent lots of time researching and trying to find something that would work in our fixtures and eventually got to the point of frustration as to what was out there with the market and decided that we needed to go ahead and design our own bulb for manufacture. And so we just did a bunch of research, started learning a lot more about the technology behind uh, some of these new LED bulbs that were kind of coming on the market and eventually uh, commissioned our own bulb um, that met our specific criteria of color temperature and size and uh, dimming capabilities and made a very scary bet and placed a very large order for thousands of thousands of light bulbs. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things where like you have to kind of commit. And I was we were fortunate enough to be in a position where we had a couple of customers who were willing to buy a portion of that order. But it was definitely one of those things where you're like, I'm really scared of investing lots of money in <laughs> technology that's brand new that is housed in a fragile glass shell. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we did it, and it's been great. You live and work in Los Angeles, not just as a designer. You run the studio, you're a boss, and I think you do a lot of your manufacturing here, correct? Correct. What's your love-hate relationship with L.A.? Um, it's all love. I have, I have very little <laughs> hate about L.A. Um, it's, uh, it's been an amazing welcome home for us. And we moved out here uh, from Providence, where I've been at RISD, in the winter of 2010. And I got this great advice before moving out from a friend who was from New York, but had lived in L.A. for years. And he's just like, when you move to L.A., when everyone else goes soft, just stay hard. And that town will be like wide open for you, which is just like a funny piece of advice. But just like, you know, like just don't lose that edge East Coasters have and work and, you know, you'll find a reward. And it was just really great advice. Uh, we've really put it to the test, but every year we've seen pretty great growth. And from the get go, I, tr- I treated my work practice as a job, you know, I showed up on time. I worked a full day, worked five days a week. And that was really hard to do. And it was just me, you know, because no one else is holding yourself accountable to being on time or to working till, you know, five or six every day. But I remember hearing his advice in the back of my head and just being like, all right, like, I just got to make it. If I want this job, I got to make it for myself. And, um, and LA has just rewarded me with so much opportunity uh, as a result. It's actually the largest manufacturing city uh, in the whole country. Um, and it's the largest port in the whole country. So I think there's an amazing amount of resources here for a designer. And I just think about how lucky we are as designers to be able to work with these factories that, you know, every day they compete with China. You know, they mm-hmm. have this amazing economy, uh, amazing productivity. Um, if you get up in LA at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning, which is oftentimes when we do our fabricator visits, like the city is humming. You know, you, you, a lot of people think of LA as this place where everyone's having lunch and getting up late and working in the movie industry. And there is some of that, but where we live on the east side of LA, it's, and especially going towards East LA and the uh, Inland Empire, it's a heavy manufacturing sector. And people who are very much awake at seven o'clock working in these big, you know, big and small size uh, factories making, you know, all types of really mundane to, you know, really surprising things. Like we have a number of vendors that make things that go to space. We have vendors that, you know, make parts on every airplane that you've ever flown on. And these are these amazing resources that we have where we take our small little five to twenty dollar you know lamp parts and next to it you'll see like a piece of fuselage from the Boeing Dreamliner and you're like, oh wow, like Yeah, you send so us cool. a bill and then you send Boeing a bill. Like we're <laughs> yeah. in the same Boeing. You know, and this is totally like just all inspiring just to see the capabilities of some of these vendors and I think that's a huge part of our process is to really respond and get ideas from these manufacturing process and these material properties, which these vendors have this amazing knowledge about. And if I think if we did overseas manufacturing, you, we would lose a lot of subtlety that goes into our designs and that sometimes give us the inspiration to start whole new designs. So I think working with local vendors is a big part of our process. And I couldn't imagine a better city than Los Angeles to do that in. Yeah. And I can see how you really use that to full effect. I'm going to shift gears now because um, I know you personally. So I know that you live in a Schindler house, which is fucking badass, dude. Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, And I know you've put some energy into it, but I need to understand it. It's also not the most comfy place because it's such a historical piece of architecture. I just want to know about your life there and how you landed there and what it's like to live in a Schindler house. Uh, it's amazing living in a house uh, designed by Schindler. He has 
managed to make a space that is incredibly bold and different. And it was built in 1938 for $6,000, which even then was like super, super cheap. And it was just built out of these amazingly mundane materials of plywood and two by sixes um, and linoleum and managed to create just through simple shifts of plane and use the use of a lot of 45 degree angles and playing with the ground plane and the roof planes to kind of create a very sculptural space that continues to inspire me every day. Um, you know, it's a plywood house and it lacks in certain places, real walls that would maybe provide privacy or um, warmth, but it makes up for that. And just like inspiration and, uh, and just amazing views of the city of LA and for years was actually uh, home to my studio. So my sister-in-law and brother-in-law were living here and they had managed to end up in a caretaking relationship with the landlord at the time. And then when she heard that they were moving out and that we were looking to buy, uh, kind of made us this amazing offer to kind of, you know, rent to own. And so we moved into this house kind of like on a whim and it was needed a lot of work, but we just fell in love with the architecture and the location in LA. And over the last four years have uh, made it, both a home for ourselves and our studio and then eventually moved the studio out two years ago and then have been slowly in the process of restoring it. But uh, it's uh, every day to wake up here is, is definitely a, a gift. And I, I feel so lucky to kind of get to know Schindler's work in this very intimate way. As also a fellow L.A. resident, you know, the architecture is so interesting here and it pleases me that houses that can be sort of historical but also dilapidated can fall into the hands of a steward like yourself, like someone who's not afraid of the work and who will will take care of this place and maintain it and appreciate it. Because it's, it could have been sold to somebody who thought, oh, you know, I need to update all of this or I need to renovate it. And then they end up doing something that's not, you know, respecting the original architecture of the home. And the previous owner had very much had that thing almost happen to her where she was in escrow to sell the house a couple of years before we bought it from her. And the guy swore up and down that he was going to restore it. And then when it fell out of escrow, she found out that it fell out because he basically didn't get a building permit to tear it down and build eight condos here. Yeah, he was. So she she felt like she barely dodged a bullet with it. And so, yeah, so you rescued it. Yeah, it was saved it. (laughs) Yeah. It was very important for her to know that, you know, we were going to be these stewards and that we had this respect and admiration for Schindler. Still, sometimes I feel very lucky to have ended up here and, you know, it needs still some more work, but we've managed to put some great amount of effort into it and gotten to a place where it's, it's very, it's quite livable and luxurious at the same time. All right. You've talked a lot about your love of kids and teaching kids. You've also talked about your, your dad and the grief over losing him, but all the wisdom he imparted through making and building and tinkering. And I have seen you personally just light up like a light bulb um, around children. You're really, really good with them. In the event that you become a father yourself, what do you think is the most important aspect of fatherhood or the hardest part? I mean, I think the most important aspect is just it's play. Uh, I think play is the thing that kind of. I mean, I, I try to do that every part of my day, but I just remember my dad being so gracious with his time to engage with us, you know, and if we were going to go out and play, you know, cops and robbers, he'd be like, okay, I'll, I'll make you a gun. And he'd make these most beautiful, you know, guns out of dowels and two by fours that, you know, as a kid, <laughs> you're just like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. Like everyone else had like a wood and like, you know, a plastic Uzi and you had this thing that was just like sculpture and you just, and it, I realized after the fact that it wasn't just that he wanted to make a gun. He also wanted to make sure that if we were playing guns, our guns didn't look like guns so that, you know, like this is a very protective thing, but also yeah. a creative thing at the same time. But I think that's the thing that I, I most look forward to. And I mean, with my nephews and, um, you know, and the kids in the summer program, I really love, it's just the, the joy of, of children who just, you know, live in this slightly fanciful world where things aren't yet defined. And so the, the line, there is no real, line between work and play you know you can kind of just merge the two and I think that's a lot of like my process it's just like trying to make sure that my work never feels too much away from play others this inherently um kid-like quality to the things that we do at least in just in the in our spirit and our energy yeah I I would agree with that that's beautiful mm-hmm. I think this is a really a dude thing because <laughs> it does it's not something I think about but do you think about legacy and 
And like how the Ravenhill name is going to carry on after you're gone or what the Ravenhill studio is going to become and if you're going to pass it down? Sometimes I think if I, if I lose myself in space, I, I definitely wonder about that stuff. But I think it's hard to visual. It's hard to worry about that too much. I think more importantly, it's more in terms of legacy, it's making sure that the work you do, you're always proud of. And so it's more like a short term thing. Like it's like every little decision that you make, like how does that fit into like a larger whole of like, is this something that I'm proud of? Is this something that like, I'm going to regret that I designed in two years? Is this a decision that like inevitably leads to further problems down the road? And I think the idea of legacy is more like, it's almost that sustainability aspect of wanting to make something that you know stands the test of time mm-hmm. because that is inherently the most sustainable thing you could do rather than making it all of recycled or reclaimed wood or making it so it can be compostable. You really want to try to design things that are hopefully timeless. Hopefully that, you know, still right. find design it. things that don't break or don't get thrown away. <laughs> don't break, don't get thrown away, but also that kind of buck trends or aren't just following fads and fashions. Mm-hmm. It isn't something that like in five years you're going to regret having in your house because it just clashes with everything, you know? So you almost yeah. want to have the, um, you know, and I, I looked uh, during my thesis year a lot at shaker furniture um, and kind of started my thesis kind of investigating the shaker and their practice. And I think that was one of the things that really resounded with me is that these pieces 150 years later still just look so cutting edge. And I was like, how do you manage to do that? How do you manage to create things that, you know, are so pure as to be, you know, timeless? And I think that's a big drive for what we do. And, and that's not necessarily specifically legacy, but it is just like, design challenge you know it's like how do you how do you make something that's not trend forward or that's not following um what everyone else is doing but that is so inherently harmonious with itself and with its utility and it ends up being just as practical you know as a hammer would be practically you know like something that like a tool is timeless Mm -hmm. Mm. and uh where do you see your studio going in the next five to ten years do you feel like you're moving in some sort of specific direction? We do a lot of visioning as to what the studio will hopefully become. We're moving into this larger space and part of us moving was starting to define like how big we wanted to become. And Mm -hmm. so I think we've kind of decided that we kind of don't ever really want to be bigger than 20, 25 people. We're at like 10, 11 people now. So it's, it's still like a lot of room for growth, but not, you know, knowing that we want to have a cap above that size, I think it just becomes a little bit less family oriented and a little bit more corporate. And we want Mm -hmm. to be very sensitive to that. But uh, we kind of see ourselves right now as primarily focusing on lighting and furniture as the, the things that like keep the lights on. So we, you know, we work on those every day, Um, four days a week, we crank out product. And then we've started this program where every Friday we do a little bit of a shift and Friday is more of like a creative problem solving day so it's the day that propose new projects that you think the studio should take on and i think as a studio grows we want to shift away from being just a lighting designer and manufacturer to being more of like a design strategy think tank and have the ability to kind of work really hard three days a week you know making the, the bread and butter money and then having two two days a week to take on bigger challenges and problems and new projects and so kind of Taking some, uh, taking some of the things that we've learned and some of the capabilities that we have and kind of shifting over to more of like a design consultancy, but also just self-funding our own projects, you know, deciding that we want to go work with, you know, a group of potters in West Africa. And like, what, what would that be to prototype things in-house, to take it overseas, to manufacture, to sell it? So all these kind of just like sharing that design creativity time with, with the studio as a whole so that not everyone's feeling that they're just working a job, but that this, this is a job with a, with a very creative element built into it. And so that everybody can make a contribution. And because I think in the end, the ideal employees are people who are like me very much driven by that, you know, balance of, you know, creative, uh, creative drive, but also inherent work ethic. There's that amazing sense of accomplishment when you've done all your work and then you can be creative. Like you kind of ate all your vegetables and now you get to have dessert. And so I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of like what we're trying to treat our weeks like. Everyone just like gets all their vegetables and proteins Monday through Thursday. And then Friday is the thing that you just like dream about. Like, okay. Donuts all day long. (laughs) Fridays at our studio now are kind of wonderful. You can just see the energy is slightly different. People aren't on computers as much and 
they are more making, tinkering, building, trying things out. And it's, it's fun. Well, that seems to fall in line perfectly with your idea of keeping work not too far away from play. Like, yeah, they're both related. Yeah, it sounds very exciting. So uh, we want to know what you have coming up. Like, is there a venture you want to plug or let our listeners know about? We are going to be releasing two or three new products, um, versions of our uh, LED sconce that we've been working on for a year or so. And then bigger versions of our grain family, which is this kind of really fun process we invented where we spin metal shades over wood molds and so are able to capture the wood grain from the mold into the finished product of the of the spun shades and then in june we're moving studios which we're super super excited about so at the end of june we'll be having a uh, sample sale and open studio party during la design week on uh, june 25th so those are the two big things in our spring schedule sounds great and where can people find you on the internet or in the retail stores Internet, we are at brendanravenhill.com. And then we don't have a lot of uh, store locations, uh, but we did just open up a showroom in uh, Tribeca with a furniture brand out there called Uhuru. Mm -hmm. So they are now exhibiting and carrying uh, our lights in their store. So people in the New York area can see them in person, which is uh, a huge, huge development for us. We often had the request of where can we see these in person in New York? And we've Previously, had to send them to restaurants, which is like a little awkward when you're like trying to look at a chandelier. (laughs) So now it's like much easier to send them to a Huru where they can see a wider selection of our stuff and have, you know, help to look at it closely and stuff. So that's great. And your social media, if people want to keep tabs on you. So on Instagram is Brendan Ravenhill Studio is the studio feed. And then I'm under just Brendan Ravenhill. This has been amazing. Thank you for sharing your history and your stories and your deep love of play and children and boat building (laughs) with us. (laughs) Thanks, Brendan. Thank you so much. He's so well-spoken. Like he was so articulate about his passions that I was really right there with him. Like I wanted to build boats and raise barns and, and I wanted to know his dad. <laughs> I wanted to see pictures of his dad. And- I know, I know. And his sculptures. I want to know what he made, you know, when he was doing his, his sculpture course. And I learned so much about him that I didn't even know. I had no idea he was a lobster fisherman. Like that's awesome and crazy at the same time. It, it makes a lot of sense when you look at his work. Like, there's a real honesty in his work. There's a real transparency about the manufacturing process, and all the parts are visible, and you can see how it was assembled. But mm-hmm. when you look closer, you see these are not stock parts. Every single one of these has been designed and considered, and there's a tinkery quality to them that's mm-hmm. taken to the most refined, edited place it can be. And... After hearing him talk, I can see how the personality and the work are just two different iterations of the same idea, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been to his studio and it reminds me of my grandfather's garage. It's just like full of tools and like parts of, you know, all kinds of random things and crazy machines and I can just see he's got that tinkering gene and I can see how he sits in his studio and plays around and tries to come up with new designs. Um, So I think having that uh, new schedule where they can talk about being creative and and what they're going to be doing next on Fridays, it sounds like a really awesome setup. And I think so many designers lose sight of the fact that you really need that that creative time that time with the team too where they feel really comfortable exploring and pitching new ideas because Mm -hmm. how else do you bring in disparate ideas and stumble upon happy accidents and and exciting directions to go in unless you foster that and as a boss I can see how scary it is because it might feel like not the best use of your money but if you're really connected to the process and you understand that input, then you know that that's a really valuable, cost-effective way to keep turnover down and also to keep your studio growing. Right, and it sounds like he's working with people who are also very creative and have a lot of ideas, not just hiring worker bees to assemble lamps. He values their ideas, and that's I think that's like the best kind of boss who who respects your, your input and your opinion. Well, that was awesome. I, I, I loved getting to know him so well. Yeah, that was great. I'm, I'm excited for his new studio, too. I, hopefully I can visit that space. Yes, come to the party. 
<laughs> well, we hope you loved listening to Brendan Ravenhill as much as we did. And, um, you know, if you like this podcast, man, please subscribe on iTunes. Give us a rating if you like it. If you yeah. don't like it, you don't have to bother. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a newsletter and show notes up at uh, cleverpodcast.com where you'll see pictures of Brendan and more of his work. Yeah, and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. And we just want to give a shout out to Chris Modal of Your Studios for editing this episode and a special thanks to L1011 for our music and Jenny Rask for our branding. Thank you so much for listening. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.